Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So before we get to our teaching, we're going to do like we always do and participate in our confession of faith. Uh, This is an open declaration of the kind of faith we want to have and the kind of community we want to be. And so we'll say this confession of faith together and then I'll speak a prayer for us. So gather, this is the faith we are seeking. All together, we are seeking an expansive faith. We believe our theological system should always be growing wider and including more. We are seeking a faith rooted in the person and practice of Jesus. We believe Jesus is God and is worthy of our worship and our imitation. We are seeking a faith built on a foundation of theological minimalism. We believe in holding tight to the first things of faith and living open-handed with the rest. We are seeking a faith marked by curiosity. We believe we should always have more questions than we do answers. And we are seeking a faith filled with compassion. We believe our beliefs are never more important than the person right in front of us. So gather as we prepare to open the scriptures, let's say a quick prayer together. God, we are here today as seekers, not seeking answers, but seeking wisdom, not seeking doctrine, but seeking a way of life inspired by the radical love of Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, I am very aware, maybe even more so recently, um, but I'm very aware that our community, this church, that we're like just a little, it's like different. Like it's a different kind of church. Like you guys all just said theological minimalism out loud together. Ever done that in a church before? Like it's just different. And I understand that. And that's, uh, I get it. And um, Sometimes, and this, some of you are not going to be surprised by this at all, but sometimes I get some outside critiques from other pastor-type people about our church, about our specific theological beliefs or about our practices or about who we include or don't uh, necessarily uh, work really hard to include or whatever, but I get some critiques. And for most of that, I've become pretty thick-skinned about, like, I'm fine. I'm like, yeah. That's cool. Like, we're doing a different thing. That's okay. We're on a different road. That doesn't bother me. I can handle it. There's only really one critique that frustrates me. And um, it's this idea, sometimes I hear from my, from my peers, that because of our theology or because of who um, we believe we're meant to include in our community or because of the way we say things or do things, that that means we're not taking all of this seriously enough. And I don't know if you've ever participated in a... a faith community that's been real in on being serious. And it's as if the angrier you are about something, that means you are taking it more seriously. So if you read the Bible as a real angry document, then that must mean you're really serious about it. And if you preach with a lot of yelling, then, oh, you guys are the serious ones. And so that critique really bothers me because I take I take all of this really seriously, but in particular, I take our theology like really serious. I care a lot about our theology, and I've told you before that our theology matters, that the way our theology is the story we tell ourselves about God. And that story, the way we imagine God to be, it really matters, and I care about it so much, and I take it so seriously. And so sometimes I just get a little, just like a little offended. when people think we don't. Because our theology, that way we imagine God, it really matters. This is what Richard Rohr says about it. Your image of God creates you or defeats you. There is an absolute connection between how you see God and how you see yourself 
in the whole universe. Theology is not just theoretical, but ends up being quite practical, practically upbuilding or practically defeating. Right, this is important stuff. And uh, right now, as a, a part of our year with Jesus, we're walking through the parables of Jesus, these teachings that offer images and stories and songs about the kingdom of God and about who God is. And they are challenging and surprising and complicated and beautiful. And today we'll be reading the parable of the barren fig tree. Nobody clapped. That's not a fan favorite. Okay, that's okay. I was like, dramatic pause. That's all right. Um, yeah, pumped. Um, but this, uh, this parable, it is, it is a parable about how we see God. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. It tells us about ourselves. Right? This is about, about who we are and that story we tell ourselves about God. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 13. It says, Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should we use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. That's the end of the story. I was talking to Katie about this this week. She was like, we don't get like a final say on the tree. Like there's no, no, there's not a real good uh, conclusion there. It's not a long or a complicated story that Jesus tells here. Uh, a tree in a vineyard, it isn't producing fruit. The guy who owns the vineyard, who is um, presumably trying to make money out of the vineyard, um, checks out the tree, tells the guy who's been working in this vineyard to cut it down. So I've checked on this for three years now. It's not doing anything for me. It's taking up space. But the groundskeeper, the man who's been there taking care of these trees and presumably working in the soil, puts up a fight. The groundskeeper says, you know, leave it alone. I'll do the work on the tree. I'll make sure it's okay. At least give me a year. The man who defends this barren fig tree, it says really clearly he's the person who's been taking care of the vineyard. And that's kind of the universal truth in the story, that we all care about what we care for. That no matter who we are or what our context is, we end up caring about what we care for. The owner of the vineyard hasn't put in long hours with these trees. He's not in the soil with them, tending, working the ground. But this other man has. He's been around the tree. He's been caring for the tree. You care about what you care for. It's just true. It's a beautiful truth. It's an important truth. But in this story, it's not really the surprise or the challenging part of the story. It doesn't make it less true or, or less important for your own life to say, yeah, if I, if the more I care for something, the more I'll care about it. That's true. Um, but it's not really the challenge of this story. So you can hold that truth today. And if you need it, I give it to you freely. But that's not really what's happening here. Jesus tells this parable about um, these two men kind of fighting over a barren fig tree right after Jesus has just addressed a, a kind of um, uh, a, a common myth in, in really all religions, but in Jesus's religion in particular. Jesus has just said, you know, those folks who, um, 
who died, there's two instances, those folks who died a really painful death at the hands of their government and the folks who died in the building that collapsed. And he lists like very particular things. He's like, do you remember how the Tower of Siloam fell down? And when I read it, I'm like, nope, but they did. And Jesus says, I just want to be clear that those folks who died at the hands of their government and those folks who died really tragically in that time where the building fell down, um, God didn't do that to them. It wasn't their sin, Jesus says. They didn't sin any more or anyone less. The point is that um, God, there is no divine punishment in the world for our behavior. Right? That your pain and your suffering, not just someone else's, apply it to yourself. Your pain, your suffering, your grief isn't divine punishment. That's good news. It's also um, particularly challenging in an eye-for-an-eye retributive kind of culture and religion. Right? If your whole world lives on an eye-for-an-eye kind of thinking, and then Jesus says, yeah, um, those people who suffered that terrible end, that wasn't divine punishment. And in fact, it's true for you too, that your pain, your grief, that's not divine punishment either. It's an important truth. And then right after that, Jesus kind of makes this point, your pain is not divine punishment. Let me tell you a story about a fig tree, which is classic Jesus teaching, that you go like, I would like just more explanation of that first point. And Jesus is like, yeah, but do you guys know about fig trees? Right, so so it, it comes as um, kind of, there's a, a prelude to this story, right? Your pain is not divine punishment. And now let me tell you the story. And it would have been normal um, to assume that in this story, with the, the characters are kind of the, the fig tree and the vineyard and the vineyard owner and the groundskeeper. It would have been normal, common practice, for, especially for the original hearers of the story, to assume that God is the powerful landowner in the story. God is powerful. The guy who owns the property is the one with the power. That must be God. And it would have been especially easy to assume that because of the stories from the Old Testament, like from Isaiah chapter 5 or Jeremiah chapter 8 or Hosea chapter 9 or Micah chapter 7, where God says, I, uh, you are like my vineyard and I have planted you here. And so these original hearers of this story, this parable, they would have assumed from the beginning that God is the landowner, the vineyard owner, the one with the power. And so the surprise here, the challenge here of the story is about how we think about God. Because God is not the vineyard owner in the story. God is the caretaker. God is the one in the dirt. God is the advocate. God is not punishing anyone. Do you see how the, the prelude to the story fits in here? That no pain or suffering is about God's divine punishment. Because God is caring about what God cares for. There's so much good news here. Like, like that God isn't in a hurry for you to produce something. That no matter what anyone has told you, God isn't looking back, judging and evaluating you, waiting to chop you down. There is no hurry in the kingdom of God. God is tending to you. God is good and God is gracious and God is gentle. And some folks have read the story and said, well, maybe um, God the Father is the wealthy landowner and Jesus is the advocate that says, no, don't chop everybody down. But what that does is it fails to, uh, to kind of um, 
remind us that Jesus is, is really the, the ultimate reflection of who God is. Jesus and God aren't at war over humanity. Jesus is showing us how God has always thought about humanity, that God has always been the one in the dirt, that God has always been the one saying, no, you have plenty of time. I'll keep caring for you. I'll keep tending to you. I will be in the dirt with you. It's a Rorschach test. It tells us about how we see ourselves, about how we see the whole world around us. Are we just waiting for everyone around us to produce a little bit faster? And so if you read this story and you imagine God to be judging and evaluating your production in the kingdom, if you imagine that God is always right on the edge of chopping you down, I would just beg you to reimagine God today as a caretaker, as a lover, as a defender, as gracious and good and gentle. This was the real challenge and the surprise of the story, especially for this original audience, because it is a reimagination of really the whole nature of religion about how we think about God and how we participate in religious settings like this. Would you guys like a quick uh, brief history of the nature of religion? Don't care, doing it either way. All right, here we go. So um, let's do a, a brief history of religion. So the earliest humans, like the very earliest humans, realized that their survival depended on um, food and then therefore like rain and sun. This makes sense, yes? Cool, I can tell you're with me today. So, right, too much water or sun, there no food grows, no one can live. It's not a complicated kind of calculation, right? So these observations um, brought everyone to the conclusion that um, humans were depending on some un for unseen forces in the world in order to survive. Because, you know, they didn't understand how rain or sun work. You're, you're just depending on these things you don't really understand in order to just literally live. And so they started to believe that these uh, unseen forces were either on their side or not on their side. And, you know, if, if you're human living in, in an agrarian culture and you need the sun and the rain and you need just the right amount, you really want them on your side. And so um, a religious system started that the next time you have a harvest, maybe you take a little portion of it and you um, uh, build an altar and you place it on the altar as a sign of your gratitude to the unseen forces, to the gods, ultimately what they're called. And then you can imagine that you offer your, um, your little bit of your harvest on the altar that you built to the unseen forces. And you can imagine what it would be like if you offered that, and then the next time there wasn't enough rain or not enough sun, or you got a disease, or you had a child die, or you couldn't have children. You would go, maybe I didn't offer enough. Or maybe I got the process wrong. Maybe I built the altar wrong. Maybe I got the order wrong. Something is wrong here. Because from the very beginning, what all religion had built into it was anxiety and insecurity. Because no one ever knew exactly where they stood with the unseen forces of the world, with their gods and goddesses. That was the question. Where do I stand? Have I done everything correctly? Have I offered the right things to my, the, the way I imagine these unseen forces to be? Have I done the process correctly? Because I want just a, the right amount of rain and just the right amount of sun so that I can survive. And then if it all goes right, then you should probably give a sacrifice of 
thanks to them, but how do you know how much to give there? Maybe you don't give enough, or maybe you give a little too much, and the cycle just continues. But anxiety and insecurity defined the nature of early religion. And some of you are like, no, it defines the nature of all religion. And that may be true. And this is um, especially the pattern of the Jewish sacrificial system. And some of you are like, the nature of early religion, Jewish sacrificial system, I have tuned out completely. And that's okay. But um, in this Jewish sacrificial system, they keep tweaking the system in order to try to perfect it and offer more and more and change the rules and change the system and protect the system so that they always know exactly where they stand with God because it's built on anxiety and insecurity. Is God okay with us? That's the big question. Have we done enough to please God? And it's, um, it's the basis of all like agrarian religious systems. But it's, it's true for us too, in a lot of ways, that no matter how many times we hear stories about grace and unconditional love, we just like in religious spaces to just like sprinkle a little anxiety on top. Like God loves you no matter what, dot, dot, dot. But you should probably believe exactly right. Like you, grace for you is free, but you never deserved it. You just go like, oh no, I was hoping this was unconditional and loving, but there's just a little anxiety and insecurity sprinkled on top. And in one of my first um, graduate school classes, it was a, a world Christianity class, and we studied the most influential Christian ideas in each part of the world throughout the Christian church. So we got to America, and we all read the really famous sermon uh, by Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon in 1741 called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We've talked about this a lot. It is exactly what you think it is. And Jonathan Edwards, he says stuff like this, God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over, over fire, abhors you, and is dreadfully provoked. Sounds like a vineyard owner that wants to chop you down, right? This sermon is one of the most influential ideas presented into American Christianity. And in my class, we read the whole sermon together, we discussed it, and then at the end, my, um, my professor said, let's do a show of hands on who agrees with these ideas. And at first, nobody raised their hand. Because when you read it, it's like, that can't be it. But then one by one, it was like a domino effect in the class. People started raising their hand and looking around. Because you could tell that they felt like they were supposed to believe that about God. That deep down, when they felt it, when they read it out loud, they were like, ah. But then they looked around and because of the culture we all grew up in, we said, yes, like, I, get, I guess that's right. Maybe that is right about me. Maybe that is how God feels about me. Because anxiety and insecurity, just like the earliest religions, they've been baked into our religious experience. And we ask ourselves, whether we know it or not, and whether we say it out loud, we are thinking to ourselves, is God pleased with me? Is everything okay? Have I done just enough? Maybe I need to do a little bit more over here, or maybe I need to do a little bit less over here, or maybe I need to change the process that I'm interacting with God by. But I just wonder, is God, are me and God okay? And that anxiety and insecurity, it is a lie. 
It may increase church participation, but it's a lie. It doesn't have to be that way. And this was the challenge and the surprise of this parable. That it is a reimagination of our whole relationship with God. That God is never out to get you. God is not judging you or evaluating you, waiting to chop you down. God is not concerned with how much you produce or how quickly you do. God is good and God is gentle and God is gracious. That's it. There is no bait and switch. There is no dot, 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 but. There's no fine print. Anxiety and insecurity are no longer required for your spirituality. You are being cared for. That's it. What good news. So how do you think of God? What is your theology? How do you imagine God to be? The story you tell yourself about God. And I wonder if you, uh, if for you, God is automatically judging and evaluating you. That that's how you imagine your relationship to God. That God is seated in heaven, just watching you with folded arms. Just, mm, I don't know, mm, lots of that, you know? Oh, that was close, you know? Oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. And sometimes these are things that we wouldn't write down. If someone said, would you describe God to me? If you were taking the quiz, you wouldn't be like, judgmental, angry. But that's how we interact with the world. It's our way of being more than it is what we would say on a test. But I wonder if that is how you imagine God to be in some ways. And what would it look like for you to trust that God is simply only caring and gentle and protective? And I know that for a lot of us, we have, we, have, we have grooves in our brain that started when we were very young about the nature of God and God's posture towards us. And so maybe if you're trying to reimagine God, you say, I do want a different kind of theology where God is not angry and judging and evaluating me. It might just start by you noticing when you default to that idea. And that's it. You go like, you know what? I may not be able to totally you know, rewire my brain on this. But when I notice myself feeling that anxiety, when I notice myself questioning whether I'm doing everything just right, that I'm just going to remind myself, no, God is the one in the dirt. God is not an angry vineyard owner. I'm just, maybe it's just, uh, you just remind yourself that you feel that when it comes up in you, that anxiety, that insecurity, and you just remind yourself a different truth. It doesn't mean you won't feel it, Maybe offer yourself no judgment when you do feel that kind of old way of being pop up. But just notice it and try not to live into that kind of way of being. And I wonder for you, um, how do you think your ideas about God, your theology, I wonder how they've impacted your way of being in the world, really specifically. You know, we sometimes use God, we use our theology, or we use... um, some other pastor's theology sometimes, as a cover for our own bad behavior and the way we think about other people. So, you know, if, if God can chop people down for not being productive enough, so can we. And if God can exclude because of any certain set of beliefs, then surely we can too. And if God uses violence to save the world, then maybe violence is okay. There is no thing as redemptive violence, by the way. 
Violence never causes more good in the world. But if God is a caretaker, then maybe we should be too. If God is in the dirt, then maybe we should be too. If God is protecting and advocating and close, then maybe we should be too. So I just wonder how your theology might be impacting your way of being in the world and how you might could start to notice that and then shift it. The the surprise here, the challenge here, is to not automatically assume that God is judging and evaluating and waiting to chop you down. The challenge is to try to diminish. You may not be able to erase it, but just diminish that religious anxiety and insecurity. Instead, find a God that is in the dirt as your advocate, as your caretaker. And that is good news. You know, this... um, This parable is about a a fig tree. And so all week I've thought about figs, and I don't know that much about figs. Uh, This is a a photo of some figs. You're welcome. (laughs) But I've uh, I've had this piece of writing um, from Hillary McBride. I know some of you may know her or follow her work. A wonderful uh, writer and therapist. But she writes about her obsession with figs and with the life cycle of figs. And so she, Hillary McBride, learns like everything there is to know about figs. And some of you may be that kind of person and you're about to do a Google search when you get home today, and that's fine. But she learned about like the mutualism between figs and wasps. Some of you were like, I got that already. I knew that. I didn't, I didn't do well in eighth grade science, okay? So this is news to me. But Hillary McBride, uh, she eventually moved to a piece of land where she had a fig tree outside of her window. So after being totally obsessed with figs and all the weird things about figs, she got to watch figs every day. And at the end of kind of doing that, uh, this is what she writes about all of that uh, research and all of that watching. She says, uh, here is what sticks with me now about figs. Figs are flowers that bloom on the inside. There is something so poetic and haunting and mysterious about this that I can't help but see all of us in this way. We are all flowers that bloom on the inside. I have taken up a daily meditation of seeing people as walking figs, an enormous amount of creative, wild beauty blooming on the inside, not always visible, but always there. Most of it I will never get close to, reserved for those intimate enough, patient enough to get close to the most tender part. But I have seen enough figs and enough humans to know that the blooming is there in all of us, even if I'll never see it directly myself. And gather, God knows what so few of us ever realize, that most of the time, for most of us, we are simply blooming on the inside. That for you, in your life, your tree may be barren, but you are not broken. It may be slow and it may be painful, but you are still healing. Divine love is whispering to each of us today. I see you and you are good. There is no hurry. And you may not know it yet or trust it yet, but God does. You are blooming on the inside. No one is waiting to cut you down. What? good news. And so gather, this is my prayer for us today. Release any fear, 
anxiety or insecurity about how God feels about you. God is caring for you in the dirt, gentle and gracious. Take a deep breath. You are not in a hurry. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.